Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm one of the hosts of the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be discussing a fascinating book that's just come out, uh, The Cuckoo Cage, published by Comma Press in 2022. Uh, We are speaking today with the editor, Ra Page, Um, and this is quite a unique experiment of a book that investigates the idea that while the superhero that we might be familiar with from comic books and films might seem to be quite quintessentially American, but actually this book argues that the cultural DNA of the superhero could possibly be traced to a much older progressive British tradition, larger than life folk heroes of historical protests um, across a number of different eras in British history, uh, General Ludd, Captain Swing, Lady Skimmington, um, and sort of these semi-fictional identities that did actually happen in the historical record um, may in fact be an interesting way of thinking about the inspiration and the idea of superheroes that we might be more familiar with in the 21st century. So taking that idea, this book is a really interesting way of examining it by asking 12 different authors to each look at one of these historical traditions and resurrect it in a sort of current or near future Britain. What could that look like? Um, each of these stories in the book is accompanied by an explanation of the history that they're based on from academics um, in a number of different fields. Um, and it really, the book together kind of pokes at this idea of what is fiction? What is reality? How do these things interact, particularly in terms of protest and politics? Um, and it's both an entertaining book and also a really thought-provoking one. So it's wonderful that we have the editor of it today. Welcome to the podcast, Raw Page. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I was wondering, um, given that this is quite an interesting premise, if you could introduce yourself, your work, your background, um, and help us understand what led you to this book. Yeah, so uh, my, uh, yeah, I, I set up uh, Comma Press uh, many years ago. I, I came, my original background from from journalism, uh, arts, arts criticism, uh, but I also have a kind of science education uh, background. And I set up Comma Press uh, really to give a space in the UK uh, for the short story. There was a uh, there was a dearth of uh, places where writers of short of short stories could be published, um, and the uh, the industry at the time in the UK was just very resistant uh, and very hostile to short fiction. So I set up Comma um, to celebrate and champion the short story, not just British short story writers, but um, international writers. Uh, the short story is very translatable and very international form in terms of its influence. So we do a lot of work in translation. Uh, and one of the interesting things that I discovered about, you know, I love short stories because of their, their form and their structure and their history. Um, um, but one of the thing, interesting things that I sort of discovered as I, as I kind of uh, grew into this, into this role uh, was how the short story lends itself very well to uh, the points of view of uh, the, the the characters from the margins, the underdogs, the uh, uh, characters without without particularly much audience. Uh, and Frank O'Connor, the Irish writer and uh, essayist, um, summarised it most famously when he said the short story doesn't have a hero in the in the typical sense that a novel or a grander narrative, a larger canvas narrative has. Uh, the, what the short story has instead is what he called famously submerged population groups. And what he meant by that was the disenfranchised characters who felt they had no stake in society and society didn't really represent or or or, or uh, kind of 
value then um as i say underdogs characters on the periphery characters on the margins and given that um well argued and quite demonstrable uh bias or uh leaning of the short story to those to those non-heroes those untraditional heroes those characters on the margins those underdogs um it's kind of it was kind of behoven on me to explore the relationship between um um the history of the history of protest and people power and people's history, as opposed to the kind of the, the history that's written by the victors or about the victors uh, and the history that's written from the point of view of power. So uh, I was I became very interested in kind of the great man theory of history, uh, Thomas Carlyle's uh, argument that history is but the biography of great men, uh, which obviously uh, everything that Comet does is. It's in opposition to that. Um, we don't believe that history is just the biography of great men and everybody else is just background material or background uh, kind of uh, backdrops. Uh, every character, every person, every individual, every citizen has as much uh, to contribute to history and does contribute to history as anyone else. Um, so uh, the short story is also very good at allowing writers to do a bit of... Um, well, um, it allows writers to uh, explore territories that they wouldn't normally explore uh, for the length of a novel. Um, the problem is um, doing research for a novel takes a very, very long time, and to do uh, the same amount of research for a short story, if it's like a historical short story, takes a similar amount of time, uh, but, the, but the short story is very kind of, doesn't offer much reward for that investment. So generally, people don't do a huge amount of research for short stories, like historical research. research. Uh, so it's not really much of a genre within the short story uh, tradition to, to do historical short stories. So what I came up with, uh, it was actually in a different project, uh, looking at science and the way science interacts with uh, fiction. Um, I set up a, a kind of a, a template for writers to uh, be paired with experts with researchers with academics uh, and initially i explored that through uh, look through looking at science so we uh, we commissioned a number of anthologies looking at different themes or different aspects of science so that included the, the history of scientific breakthroughs uh, bioethics uh, science of sleep we do the projects on science of sleep um, the science of artificial life um, and so forth and in each one of those cases we paired the writers with uh, writers individually with with scientists, and they produced the work that responded to the research, and then the scientists wrote an afterword that responded in turn to the story, uh, but also explained the science behind it or the research behind it uh, to a general reader. So we had that what we call the science interfiction um, series, and then I applied that to the history interfiction, and obviously it was people's history because of what I said earlier about the, the nature of the short story. It was people's history that we wanted to explore. So. The, we brought out two books uh, in a, a series about British protest. Uh, the first book was just called Protest uh, Stories of Resistance, and the second book was called Resist Stories of Uprising. And in the second book, um, in particular, I came across a character called Rebecca. Um, <clears throat> I say character. She wasn't a real person. Uh, she was, a, as you say, she was a, a persona, a fictional character um, who was the kind of figurehead um, of the Rebecca riots of the um, late 1830s. 
um, so in South Wales. So um, that was a, a, a strange series of events where uh, men from a certain village in South Wales gathered together one evening and decided to dress up and pretend to be either Rebecca or the followers of Rebecca, other women who followed Rebecca. And they went off to protest against the uh, installation of toll gates on a certain road going through their village. Uh, and this, uh, this, this strange performative uh, protest, they, they ended up smashing up the toll gate. Um, and afterwards, when, when asked who did it, they said, Rebecca did it. Uh, but this became, a couple of years later, a, a precedent for a whole series of riots which went on, or toll gate smashings, um, which went on uh, across, across the region. So um, this struck me as a very odd um, and interesting performative type of protest. But when I started thinking about it, there was actually a long uh, list of other examples of this performative protest um, where uh, a movement got behind a particular identity. This identity may have been once a real person, but they've they've become larger than life and mythologized to the point of not being just that person, but being far more than that person. Uh, Or they could be a completely constructed uh, um, identity for the purposes of anonymity. The latter was the case uh, um, for the swing riots where um, threatening letters were written, signed Captain Swing or just Swing uh, to, to farmers and landowners who were introducing automation. Uh, and it was also, um, and, and there were other examples of uh, protests gathering around certain identities, like uh, the Luddites obviously gathered around General Ludd, who was loosely based on a, a real, possibly a real character called Ned Ludd, but um, those protests uh, transformed and spread to the point where General Ludd was a, a mythic character. Um, and then you, you see it elsewhere, you see it in uh, much older, wider traditions of Charivari and uh, Skimmington, Lady Skimmington, which were kind of, which were also called rough music, where uh, uh, pre-modern um, traditions of of protest and disorder and carnival kind of all mixed together um, to create a, uh, a precedent and a and a and a, and a, a kind of a legitimate or a self-legitimizing way of protesting against a, a you know a certain wrong so the interesting thing about this performative uh, protest especially in the case of Rebecca was there was a, there was also a script that was read out and enacted there was a kind of a call and response script between Rebecca and her followers um, before they smashed up a toll gate so this kind of carries with it a certain amount of uh, uh, authorization because this script has been written beforehand everything you know the community has agreed to this performance um, and it shows a certain degree of uh, of process and, and legit- legitimization around this so it's not just a chaotic riot riot where you know hooligans smash something up it's a very 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 uh, uh, carefully calculated act and a collectively uh, constructed um, performance. So that's that's what really got me interested in this particular subject. Um, and as I say, we, we've done we've now done three history into fiction books. The first two were about British history, and the third was about uh, American uh, foreign policy. And in each of those books, we had a, a piece of fiction inspired by the research, and then the researcher, uh, the academic consultant, writing an afterward a short essay explaining the history a little bit uh, to, for the general reader. 
And it occurred to me that uh, I've always, you know, on a, on a, from a separate point of view, that I've always loved uh, superhero fantasies as a kid. Uh, you know, I loved the 1980s Batman, um, the Tim Burton version of Batman. Uh, I love that that idea um, of an alternative justice, form of justice. Or, but then it, you know, it quickly occurred to me that. Um, the superhero represents, in, in many cases, just another form of uh, of police or vig- vigilantes- vigilantism, pardon me, which is very problematic and very conservative with a small c. Um, so I was kind of, I'm, I'm, I was always interested in what would a political superhero look like, a superhero that didn't just fight um, fight crime or petty crime, effectively, but fought against uh, social injustice. What would a superhero look like that fought against structural social wrongs? Um, and yeah, so and it I was also interested in the way that um, people who are interested in kind of social wrongs are demonised and uh, and kind of mocked and ridiculed uh, online by f- uh, fan groups and and right wing groups, but often in just general discourse. Uh, they're referred to as SJWs, social justice warrior, um, and often there's kind of, kind of sexism built into that as well. Um, and I was interested in this, in reclaiming this idea of social justice warrior and throwing um, the the otherwise very very neutral and dangerously worryingly neutral world of the superhero uh, into into kind of real politics and into what what constitutes real social justice. Um, conflict and social justice protest so yeah those are some of the ideas that and and the processes by which i came about this book yeah no that that really helps understand um what brings into this book and i think it's worth sort of bringing together those two points that you mentioned the idea of how does this link to american superheroes well in one sense there's the idea of a persona of a character um and that comes through really clearly in some of the stories I think we're probably going to talk a bit about. Uh, you've already mentioned Rebecca that wasn't actually a real person at all. Um, but there was a particular script, a particular ritual of how this was enacted, um, which is quite similar in a lot of ways to some of the classic superhero stories. Um, but then also there's this idea that in some ways the stories told in this book are quite the opposite almost to some of these classic American superheroes in terms of what they're fighting against um, who they're fighting for. Um, and the book, I think, does a really interesting job of sort of poking at that idea of um, superheroes fighting for the little guy. Um, but actually, what does that mean in practice? Um, and some of the structural things might be more, uh, might be defending the little guy more than going after someone who takes your purse or something like that. Absolutely. And it's also uh, pokes at the idea of, you know, how we define the little guy and how we define uh, the defense of the little guy it's obviously it's an american definition of the little guy so it's the small businessman and it's and it's defending his or her purse as you say um it's it's about uh defending defending individualism and defending ultimately the kind of status quo capital, uh, capitalist status quo that america joy enjoys and um it was very very funny i the previous book to this which was about in the series which was about uh American foreign policy. I called it the American way, obviously citing Superman, you know, a truth justice in the American way. And as that book was brought out, 
DC Comics removed the phrase uh, the American way from uh, Superman's official kind of logo because even DC Comics, um, even at the heart of, you know, American American sort of uh, self-aggrandizement, you have an awareness that the American way um, or, or just presenting, you know, justice as America and America as justice is problematic. Um, so, yeah. Well, and I think another interesting um, aspect that comes out from the stories is quite often um, the inspirations that they're drawing on in the book is from protests that happened in Britain that were against um, things like the increase of factories and machines, the um, enclosure of land, and so removing it from common use. Um, and yet so much of the American superhero tradition is really heavily urban, is really yep. heavily industrialized. Yep. Um and I think that that's an interesting thing to play around with as well, is what if the um, the superheroes that are fighting, what they're fighting against is actually the exact same sorts of environments that superheroes we might be more familiar with today operate in without a second thought. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's, it's interesting to compare the kind of um, the technological uh, um, fetishization of technology, shall we say, uh, within the the classic American superhero, the love of gadgets, the love of new tech, new tech t- technology, you know, solving everything, solving everything. You know, all we need is just more tech, more gadgets. Um, with with as you say, this kind of anti automation, uh, anti mechanization uh, tradition. Um, and I was also I, I was also really interested in um, just as you say that the difference in in. Um, different in, in landscapes between the two, with 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 Batman and with Gotham, we think of Gotham as the the coolest, most urban, most darkest, uh, most you know rain soaked, uh, uh, kind of back alley stuffed, um, shadow covered um, kind of landscape that we can imagine. It's the, it's as you say, it's quintessentially urban. It's the def, you know, it's the the peak of urbanness. Uh, Gotham, as we understand it, uh, and you know how how urban landscapes can become dangerous and scary through their through their urbanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ironically, the the word or the name Gotham was a word. If you trace it back, uh, was first used by the American writer Washington Irving in the nineteenth century to mock people from New York. He called them Gothamites, as in he meant they were they were all crazy. People in New York are crazy. They're like Gothamites because for him and for, for many people before him, the word Gothamite refers to a book uh, which just went through many, many different editions called The, uh, the Merry Men of Gotham or The Wise Men of Gotham, which dates back to uh, Henry VIII's time, uh, which, is, which is a collection of very, very peculiar uh, anecdotes about the villages of a certain small rural village in Nottinghamshire, um, six or seven miles south East, uh, southwest of Nottingham, um, in which one day uh, apparently everybody in the village collectively pretended to be mad. Um, and originally it was called the Madman of Gotham and it was later called the Wiseman of Gotham because it was understood that the reason they were pretending to be mad um, was uh, very calculated. They, uh, King John was uh, either trying to um, go through the village and therefore. Uh, the, the village, the road through the village would would become a, a royal road or a public road, and would have to, they would have to pay toll 
money for it and to use it. Or he was trying to build a hunting lodge. There's two different theories. But either way, the villagers didn't want uh, King John to, to go through their village and to enter their village. So they stalled him and they held him up on the, on the moor outside the village. And then when he sent his servants, his emissaries, into the village to see what the hell was going on with this place and why were they revolting, um, everyone pretended to be mad. So, uh, so in a way, that village uh, and that story of that, that village is, again, a collective performative protest. Um, but bizarrely, its name has been applied to New York and then New York and then uh, DC Comics uh, decided to, to base Batman in some version of New York called, uh, called Gotham. Um, and so we have a, the ultimate urban landscape actually based on a very, very um, rural and quintessentially British uh, village. Um, and there are a number of ways in which we see this sort of this twisting of things play out in these stories. So you've introduced us already to sort of two of them. Um, I was wondering if you could explain sort of how did you choose which historical inspirations to put in the book? Um, and if you could introduce us to one or two more of them that got included. Yeah, so um, what I did was uh, I compiled a list of um obvious obvious kind of uh, persona or collective identities and I also um, uh, consulted with many 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 historians some of them I'd used on previous previous projects and some of them I got I, I was put in touch with by other historians so we compiled uh, a very very long list of these uh, collective identities sort of semi-fictional figureheads and, and pseudonyms that were used by protesters or critics of any particular um, any particular sort of government at the time. And um, we then presented, and each one of those uh, had a historian sort of consultant attached to it, and we then presented that list to uh, the writers. And the writers sort of chose them sort of in a, on a first-come-first-served basis. And um, there, were some, there were some kind of movements sometimes. Uh, one particular writer... Um, asked Pikalu asked for a story about the sea or about he wanted to write about water he'd been researching and working a lot with um, kind of maritime stories and histories and research so I went back and looked for a pseudonym or collective name that was used uh, in maritime history and eventually I found one in uh, HMS Hermione so Hermione was uh, HMS Hermione was this, uh, the largest mutiny uh, in the British Navy, in the history of the British Navy. And it came about uh, because of a, a very a particularly abusive uh, first mate, uh, Hugh Piggott, I believe his name was, um, who beat uh, various, um, um, uh, various sailors under him. Um, and eventually the uh, the crew just completely mutinied and threw him overboard. And not only was it the largest mutiny in, in British naval history, but it was all, also came at a time right in the middle of lots of, uh, well, in the immediate aftermath of lots of revolutions, the French Revolution, uh, the Haiti Revolution and others. So it was a very delicate time, very sensitive time for, for the British. And um, uh, the vast majority of the mutineers were never caught. 
uh, never rounded up. So for many years later, and for, for decades later, uh, sailors often said, um, or let it be known, that they themselves were Hermione mutineers, or they they had previously worked on Hermione as a way, as a kind of coded threat, but also as a way of gaining respect um, for them. Um, I, you know, don't don't mess with us. Um, so it became a sort of a collective identity. So that one wasn't uh, a kind of uh, a figurehead for protest, but it was a it was an identity associated with a previous protest. Um, yeah, so we we created this list, and the the writers uh, uh, chose them, and some of them chose them because of their location. So, in the case of uh, Jacqueline, as the project started, I mean, we, I started commissioning it at the beginning of the pandemic, um, and obviously the George Floyd uh, protests uh, took off, and everybody's thoughts were about. Uh, Black Lives Matter and about that kind of moment in our contemporary history and several of the stories sort of pick up on it in different ways and one of them was uh, Courtier Newland's story and he wanted to write straight away he wanted to write about Bristol because of what happened in the UK obviously with the, the toppling and the throwing into the river of the uh, the Colston statue uh, the slaver statue so he created a character called Jack Lent um, and Jacqueline, he, he, he flipped the gender. Jacqueline in the, in the story is, is a woman. Uh, but um, Jacqueline, in a Bristol context, uh, historical context, was the, the name of a, a series of uh, riots uh, 200, 300 years ago, um, which were against the, against the installation of tolls, rather like Rebecca, uh, and access to certain roads. Um, in in and around Bristol, so he took this and he relocated um, the the character, made her a, a mixed race girl who had um, uh, specific superpowers of being able to create interdimensional portals into other uh, the portals to different parts of our universe, but also to other parallel universes. And she was a, a street fighter who, by night, would uh, would push slaver statues, hop around the country and and fire slaver statues and other questionable memorial uh, kind of statues and um, monuments into portals, like push them into, into other dimensions uh, just to remove them from, uh, from, our, from our public spaces. Uh, this was being written at a time when uh, the culture secretary at the time, Oliver Dowden, was saying if any museums try to follow suit and try to remove historical monuments or statues from their collections or if any galleries try to do it they will lose their funding so it was slap bang in the middle of that kind of culture war uh, that was being set up post um, George Floyd and BLM um, and I was you know I was very conscious of that and I was very very happy that uh, Courtier um, was was you know embracing it and going for it and you know, not pulling his punches. And I think that that is, I'm, I'm glad you brought up those two stories um, because they do speak to a lot of current things happening today while also being really deeply rooted in the stories they came from. Um, so Hermione's story, for example, uh, the modern interpretation is uh, a fisher uh, captain, a sea captain, essentially, using her powers um, of being able to breathe underwater to save migrants coming over the channel. Um, 
and take them away from the oppression of the system that both forces them to leave their homes and then how they're treated when they get to the UK. Absolutely. So she works on a on a trawler, a fishing trawler, and uh, and it's an with the exception of the captain, uh, it's an all woman uh, trawler, and um, she has the secret power of uh, being able to um, to breathe underwater, and only her fellow crew members know about this. Um, and yes, they spot a they spot a um, a boat that's in trouble, a refugee, uh, a dinghy full. Uh, uh, carrying refugees that's in trouble in a storm, and um, it's it's in turn inspired or influenced by uh, a Caribbean legend, which Pete Pete talked about. At, um, we, we launched it uh, last week, and he and he talked about um, this this legend in uh, Caribbean folklore uh, called the Blue Devils, which was this belief that, um, or yeah, this story um, that. Um, Many of the slaves that were thrown overboard and left to drown uh, in the in the slave trade um, got up from the bottom from the bed of the sea and walked along the bed of the sea back uh, to shore to enact their reparation to take revenge or to uh, to to wrong uh, to right the wrong uh, that had befallen them and they were called the blue devils um, so he so he takes that idea and he applies it to the uh, the contemporary context of, you know, refugee, the refugee crisis as it's as it's known, and uh, British hostility to to, to refugees, um, uh, certainly refugees of colour, um, which has obviously been ex- the hypocrisy around our hostility to refugees has obviously been exposed in the tragic events of the last two weeks, um, when there's been this outpouring, uh, quite rightly, of uh, sympathy. Um, uh, towards refugees from the Ukraine, uh, which simply isn't there when it comes to refugees from from Syria or Iraq or Libya um, or any of the places up um, where we have caused uh, the problem in the first place. Yeah, um, and and I think that that's one of the really interesting things that comes through in the book is this idea that it is very clearly based in this historical record and yet speaks immediately to things that we all experience in our daily life and see on the news all the time um, before you even get to the bit at the end of the short story that explains the historical background. Um, it always feels like something we can immediately understand and engage with. Um, and you've spoken a bit so far about how you recruited the um, historical consultants for this project, um, and you've mentioned the writers. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you recruited these writers. So, um, so yeah, um, it's. Uh, I'm really, really happy w- with this list of writers. It's slightly different to any of the other uh, books we've done before in terms of the, the, uh, the, the collection and the, yeah, the, the mixture um, of of different writers. Um, I've worked with most of them before, so uh, in in one capacity or another. So I'm I'm familiar with pretty much. All of them. Uh, there were two that I hadn't worked with before, but they came strongly recommended, and I knew their work. I'd seen their work online. Um, those being uh, Divya and Lisa, uh, Divya Galani and Lisa Lux. Um, some of the writers are, are, are moving into into move, moving into writing short short, short fiction, having uh, previously written poetry like uh, Gaia, 
and also uh, Gaia Homes and also Lisa Lux. Uh, some of them I worked with uh, many, many years ago. And then when this when this project came up and I um, and the kind of revolutionary um, part of this project made me think of them, even though I haven't worked f- with them for many years. So MY Alarm, who goes by Eunice Alarm, um, he was a writer I definitely wanted to reconnect with. Um, and obviously, there's a there's a very very strong um, uh, uh, kind of uh, constituency of writers of color in there, um, and uh, and also LGBT writers. But I didn't want to I didn't want to allocate them and, and say you do this, you do that, you know, at all. I, I just let them let them choose their stories and um, by their you know through their own interests and what what was grabbing them at the time. And I also wanted to kind of compare the, or contrast the end of the worldness of the American superhero, because in American superhero narratives, it's always the end of the world. It's, it's, New York is always being attacked, or Gotham, or Metro, Metropolis, or whatever you want to call New York. It's always been, it's always under attack from, you know, and it's always facing an existential threat, which when you face an existential threat, you kind of, uh, you rally behind your superhero and you say, you know, the world as it is, is fine. We want to defend that, which kind of instills in you a conservatism. Um, and it says, you know, let's keep what we've got. Let's be happy with what we've got. Let's be satisfied with what we've got and let's save it. Um, but that's not how this book works at all. By contrast, you've got Lisa Lux's shape-shifting character, uh, Lexi, who whose goal and the the target, what she applies her supernatural superpower to, is robbing supermarkets uh, for nappies and for bread and for uh, baby uh, formula, milk formula, and things like this. Absolute basics to then give to uh, food banks and. Um, uh, single mother support groups and so forth. So it's really uh, superheroes fighting for the very poorest and and using their superpowers to achieve you know the most modest uh, of goals. They're not saving the universe. They're you know putting bread on the table, putting food on the table, uh, getting nappies and milk formula for um, for single mums living on on the poverty line. Um, that in itself makes us think about the world in which we're living, rather than get behind, um, get behind Superman or Batman or whatever, and, and defend uh, the status quo and keep it alive and you know glorify the world exactly as it is. Um, it exposes the world exactly as it is, and it exposes the inequities and uh, and injustices of food banks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and poverty. And this goes back to the idea as well about defining who is the little guy, um, which I think that story shows um, really clearly. So I realize that asking an editor to sort of pick your favorite is probably a very tricky question. Um, So instead, I'll frame it as as, um, not necessarily which story that ended up in the book was your favorite, um, but of kind of the different inspirations that um, were the genesis of these stories or maybe one of the stories that came out was there a particular one that you find most compelling or most surprising? 
so yeah, I'm not going to pick a favourite because they're all my favourites, uh, <laughs> and I'll never be able to work with the writers again if I did. Um, the t- the two the opening two stories were really important. Uh, Luan Goldie's story, which was uh, which is called Pause, which is about Lady Skimmington, and, and it's about um, a, a woman who pr- decides to protest against the selling off of a part of her local park. Again, it's very very modest. Uh, it's very local, uh, but oh my god. It, nothing hit the nail on the head quite so much as that story at the beginning of the pandemic when parks uh, were keeping us sane and keeping us alive. I mean, I, I would have gone completely crazy and so would have thousands of others, I'm sure, if they didn't have access to a local park. Uh, just to walk around, you know, re- repeatedly, day after day after day, the same path, uh, going round and round and round like a rat in a maze. Uh, but parks were were incredibly spiritually important to everyone, to normal people, certainly in the UK, certainly in urban or suburban UK. Uh, so that was that was a fantastic story to get, um, and uh, that particular character was able to freeze time. Um, so you get you got some wonderful images of protests and sort of carnivalesque protests frozen in time, while she's also dressed up and mocking the. The, the mayor of the local council who's trying to sell off this land to private investors and and you know, property developers and what have you. So that was really, really good to receive. And also courtiers, which I've mentioned earlier. Those two stories were so timely at the beginning of the pandemic and early on in the pandemic that I when I got those, I knew this was a project. I knew this was a book. Until then, it was just one of my crazy ideas. And when I got Luan's story and courtier's story, I knew I, I had to, I had to finish this, um, and every story that followed was surprising in different ways, um, and uh, I was incredibly pleased with the sense of place because um, I asked the writers to set their stories in different parts of the UK, in suburban, small town, northern, midlands, everywhere, um, and and countryside. So I was very uh, pleased with that that blend, that constellation of different settings, uh, because. Whenever you know, whenever you talk about superheroes, when when they do come to the UK, which is very very rarely, it's always you know the, the landmarks of London and you know uh, Tower Bridge and blah blah blah. Um, it's never normal, uh, familiar, local, provincial, um, British setting. So that was that was uh, really really important to me. Um, and yeah, there's lots and lots of influences. Like the last story, I I wanted to, uh, this is this is definitely the most prescriptive um, project that I've ever commissioned. Usually, I just say to writers, take you know, take your pick, take one of these, go away, have fun. But with this, I was very very prescriptive because they needed to work like superhero stories, and I knew that writers would fen- fight against any prescription I gave. So I need to, I need to be as prescriptive as I could be, as they'd allow me to be. And as I say, most of them I've worked with before, so they kind of trusted me a little bit. Um, so I wanted to create a space between the first 11 stories, which are effectively origin stories, um, and the 12th story, which we've called post-credit in the style of Marvel post-credit scenes, um, which sort of picks up about uh, a couple of years later or a year or so later after the, the other stories and finds most of the superheroes uh, in jail, incarcerated, drugged up, and removed of their superpowers. Uh, and it's essentially a, uh, a prison breakout story. And that's obviously inspired by this long history of, uh, long kind of tradi- cinematic tradition of uh, prison breakout stories. Um, in particular, um, I, Michael, uh, um, Alan Moore, sorry, is a, is a colossal figure um, and looms 
looms uh, large over this project. Obviously, he invented the political superhero in a way with with V for Vendetta, um, and he also kind of invented the use of superhero as a critique of culture with the Watchmen. So he's incredibly strong. Um, uh, influence on this project, and it was a particular interesting uh, influence on the um, on the final story because of there's a scene in V for Vendetta where uh, V creates a, um, an entirely uh, fictional sort of backstory about a prisoner um, who lives in the cell next to the woman that he's incarcerated, and about her her, her past, and that that fictional. Um, uh, in, invented story of a fellow prisoner writing notes and pushing them through uh, through a hole in the wall um, was really really kind of influential on the final story as well as other, other things like uh, there's a there's a Marvel one shot called uh, uh, All Hail the King uh, which is like three minutes long but it's very very similar sort of stylistically I think to the to the last story and I think that that gives us an idea right and i i do i i had wondered when i read it why that last story was a little bit different in a way um but it does work at the end of it um so it's interesting to sort of hear the thought behind it um and now that we've got sort of an idea of the different some of the different inspirations and some of the different stories that are in the book um i sort of want us to take us back to that divergence that we touched on in the beginning the idea that although there might be a lot of similarities between American superheroes and these stories, the, these historical incidents of its protest, its performative, um, its resistance, it's framed as defending the little guy. Um, there are often, there are also some pretty big differences um, in terms of who is actually the little guy and um, what is their relationship? What is the superhero's relationship to capitalism, for example, and industrialization? Um, and it was really interesting to read about this link between these things that maybe the British history of this inspired the American and yet to see almost a complete 180 in a lot of senses of what we are now more familiar with. Um, so I was wondering, given that you've been so immersed in this project um, and all these different aspects of it, if you had any ideas about why we've ended up with such a divergence? Mm. Yeah. Oh gosh. Uh, that's the that's a thirty-five million dollar question or sixty million dollar question. Whatever the phrase is. Yeah. Uh, it's a really really difficult one. What I'd start by saying is that it is a one eighty. Um, it is a complete divergence, uh, as you say. Uh, but there are some aspects of it which are, uh, are still there. So I'm, I'm, you know, as an as an adult, as a as a literary editor, I'm not necessarily interested in you know captain america or marvel or whatever i'm not interested in in those stories but what i am really 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 fascinated and obsessed by is fandom um and the relationship between fans uh and fan fiction uh and these meta narratives that are continually rebooted and recast and and um and it's it it is a collective process uh, and it's a collective ownership uh, and you know, some fans are so loyal they'll like anything that's given to them, no matter whether it's well put together or or not. Um, some fans are a little bit more discerning and you know and have their favourites. Some fans live entirely in nostalgia, um, and you know you could criticise parts of 
certain fandoms uh, for just being obsessed with the past and just wanting to recreate their childhood. And there's lots of kind of um, social criticisms of fan groups. Um, and, you know, there's the man-baby phenomenon where, you know, lots of men of a certain age, white men of a certain age, were very critical of the new kind of uh, more, in quotes, woke uh, versions of Star Wars. And then there was a criticism of them back, say, calling them man-babies because they were so... Uh, they're so trapped by their own nostalgia and the, 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 you know, the culture that they grew up. They want to just continually recreate the same culture with the same values. Um, so that that really interests me. But it's but it is a collective process, and the the appreciation uh, alongside the sort of slightly negative uh, nostalgia merchants within any fandom, there is a huge amount of creative energy in uh, putting to. Uh, put into the kind of the appreciation of these meta narratives, and they are huge, huge meta narratives. If you look at Marvel, it is colossal. It's hundreds of characters, hundreds of different universes, let alone different planets and timelines and everything else. Um, and the um, the study of it, the the the, uh, the aficionados, the obsession exists almost out of sight or under the radar of of popular, wider, you know, wider mainstream culture, although it obviously feeds into mainstream culture as well. And um, it's it's not as, I would argue, it's not as reactionary, it's not as conservative um, as, it's, uh, as it appears because of certain elements within it. And there's some, there's some very interesting research done on how people become rad- radicalised and become, you know, far right-wing nutjobs and... Uh, because of you know in a process that starts with you know their their particular fandom uh, or or their particular obsession becoming um, um, slightly more liberalised or being brought dragged into the twenty first century in terms of its moral values. So uh, there's a there's a lot there's a huge amount going on with any fandom, um, and I love the the as I say the just the colossal amount of creative energy put into. Uh, unpacking and decoding um, these these works, and often there's um, you know the, you'll you'll find uh, breakdown videos online and um, Easter egg what are called Easter egg videos breaking down f- tiny little details that have been put into you know set designs and other things of films, which go on and on and on for hours and hours and hours around every every installation they get uh, every installment sorry they get from a, of a particular franchise. That's not to say that other types of films aren't as creative and aren't as thoughtful in their set designs and their tiny, tiny little details. But in the in the superhero kind of in that in, in the fandom world, you get people analysing and appreciating and breaking down that. Whilst in uh, more more arty films, shall we say, or more literary uh, works, you don't get that amount of granular uh, appreciation and, and decoding and deconstruction. Um, so it's so it's a very interesting kind of uh, world that that appreciation that world of appreciation. Um, so I wouldn't say that uh, the American superhero is um, is a is all about the individual. Um, if you look at conventions, uh, cons, you know, comic cons or whatever, um, the the enjoyment is a collective process. It's about dressing up it's about cosplay cosplay is a very interesting phenomenon uh, in in of itself and and what i was 
what I was highlighting in the historical record and this historical process was cosplay. So it's collective ownership of characters, collective ownership of the, the costumes and the paraphernalia they put around themselves. Uh, this is what happens at every uh, every convention, every Comic-Con you can go to. Um, and uh, and it's a collective ownership of, of those characters. So, um, so, it's, so it's far, far beyond the the invention of one person or one artist. It's not about the artist, you know. Gene Roddenberry with Star Trek may claim to be the creator of Star Trek, but you know he has no say in the latest, you know, uh, Star Trek reboot, and nor should he. And you know, obviously he passed away many years ago. But if he even if he wasn't, he would have no say in it, and his say would be um, would be relevant, just as in a way. George Lucas now has no say in uh, the new uh, Disney-owned kind of uh, uh, Star Wars spin-offs. You know, some of the good, some of them are good, some of them are bad, and it doesn't really matter what George Lucas has to say about them. Um, so, so that collective ownership of a work um, is carrying on, and it's st- it's still there. So, just as the just as the original superheroes were collectively owned. Um, the, the big difference I find um, is the relationship to the truth. Uh, and when um, I, I kind of made, a, I made a foot, I put in a footnote about this because people, when I started this project, and I was, I was talking to a few people about it, they often thought that I was doing something about anonymous. You, know, you mean like anonymous? And I was thinking, yeah, well, there's a there's an Alamo reference in anonymous with the V for Vendetta masks. Obviously, it's connected to anonymous. And then, you know, people then made the next step, which was to things like QAnon and conspiracy theories, and things like the QAnon shaman who dresses up at the uh, January sixth riot, uh, the Capitol Hill, or things like that. And you just and I wanted to make very clear that um, I, there was a difference here. The difference between um, those, that kind of uh, anonymous protest, purely anonymous protest, and what this, what the, these uh, collective protests was about was a, was a, um, their relationship with the truth. So um, QAnon claims to be, the original QAnon was somebody who claimed to have Q clearance, which is high-level, top-secret government clearance, uh, access to blah, 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 government secrets. So he claimed to be a real person. So the QAnon uh, phenomenon follows somebody who claims to be a real person, whilst all of the characters I was dealing with claimed to, uh, didn't claim to be a real person, they claimed to be a fictional person. Um, they embraced their, their fictional side. So I want to separate those two things as well. Um, and obviously, yeah, to, but to go back to your original question, you know why is the why is Superman um, there for truth, justice in the American way? Um, whilst these characters were obviously the opposite of that, um, I think it's to do with to do with the the industries which they which the superhero eventually found himself in, which was um, um, cinema. As as superheroes progressed from comics, which were essentially Kids reading materials. They were they were YA reading materials through to cinema. They had to become not just kids' films. They had to become um, kind of family films for for all the family. And with large scale uh, 
you know large amounts of studio investment they would have to have a, they would have to subscribe to a certain moral universe um and they would have to have certain certain uh kind of moral values attached to them and hollywood is essentially it doesn't know it but it, it, it would deny it but it's essentially the pr department of american foreign policy or american uh the way america wants to be seen to the rest of the world whether it's culturally or politically um so when it enters into that kind of world especially the you know the the studio the still slightly studio world of the 70s and 80s um it has to be uh has to subscribe to that set of you know the the american outlook um of the of the 70s and 80s whilst now i think things are changing slightly um you know there's there's a there's a fragmentation of of uh production and the way in which we um we experience film and tv obviously with streaming services and other things i think it's not such a uh a, a monolithic kind of advertisement for quote the american way um as as it used to be the film and tv industry those that that's a really interesting sort of exploration um and touches on a lot of subjects i think uh, come up in the book and are definitely of interest to our listeners so thank you for sharing your thoughts on that um and particularly on the idea of uh, Hollywood in relation to American foreign policy. Uh, listeners who are listening to this right now, uh, stay tuned. In April, we'll have another episode on this channel that uh, is about a book that entirely focuses on that, titled A Righteous Smokescreen, Post-War America and the Politics of Cultural Globalization. So if that's a topic you are interested in, stay tuned on this channel. Um, now, again, this is a mean question it always feels to ask, given that your book has literally just come out. Um, but you do describe the book in your editor's note as being a launch party. And you've already spoken about how this is part of a series. Um, and you've already talked about how short stories can allow us to explore things that maybe wouldn't get explored in a novel, um, kind of gives a lot of avenues for exploration. So... Do you have any ideas of what you want to see come out of this? Is it going to be what you work on next? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, well, I, I'm always working on lots of lo- lots of different projects within the publishing house. Uh, some of which are kind of my projects, and some of which are other people's. But there's always many projects going on at, at once. So, so yes, as I, as I say, um, there's a number of stages, next next steps that I have in mind. The first is to fill the gap between the uh, between the the eleventh story and the twelfth story, um, so I was I was very interested in um, the idea of you know the the grand the grandiose American superhero saves the world saves the universe every time and has these you know uh, absolutely cosmic uh, achievements whilst um, the the shapeshifter who's stealing uh, bread and nappies um, ends up getting caught and, and fails. Um, I, I wanted to really juxtapose that uh, those two worlds, and I wanted to to show that even with superpowers, uh, in many cases, uh, protest will face failure um, because the history of protest is a long, sad history of failures uh, to a certain extent. Um, you know, obviously there's some notable victories, but a lot of the time we, we find ourselves fighting for the same things that, you know, in a different form that people were fighting for. A long time ago and in some cases we're fighting for far far less 
um, than what others fought for, especially on things like access to common land and common ownership and things like that. So I wanted to, I wanted all of my superheroes to fail one way or another. Um, so I wanted them all to be rounded up and, you know, or most of them to be rounded up in print jail. So there's a big gap between, as I say, the 11th story and the 12th story. So the next commission, to answer your question, uh, will be a part two of this book, which fills in some of that space. And obviously I want to bring in new characters as well. So, and it will also take it a little bit further after, after the 12th story. Um, so, um, so yeah, uh, there's, there's something very um, appealing about uh, turning a, a narrative upside down rather than having a happy ending, having a, a bad ending. Anybody that's interested in the fandom and some of the things I was talking about will know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Empire Strikes Back, which is an upside down film. Uh, it starts with a big battle, ends with failure, um, and is uh, profoundly moving because it's so different in that way. Um, and so, so that's like stage two. Um, I've also, the, the writers of these stories have also agreed, you know, contractually, all of them agreed to the idea that these characters are common ownership uh, with regard to other, other writers uh, and other graphic novelists. So they belong to the fandom. So anybody can write uh, about any of them. Um, and there's no, not going to be any copyright claims with regard to that. So um, that's to do with writers and, and graphic novelists, not to do with film adaptations, I should say. Um, so at some point I, I want to start commissioning. Um, but this this is like stage three. I will I will start inviting uh, graphic uh, graphic artists to to start working on uh, a comic book version of the same thing. Um, and and uh, longer term, I'd I'd love um, to to go into TV and, and film adaptations of it because I, I the whole thing is is conceived as a uh, as a multi platform meta-narrative really something which exists in, in book form in um in short story form in, in comic book form and in and visual tv or film form amazing well i think there's a lot for listeners and readers to get stuck into um while all of that is in development there's a lot of um one of the things that i personally like about short stories is that uh they spark imagination they spark ideas um and sometimes because they're short and don't necessarily have an end, um, they stay with you because you're still wondering about them. Um, so readers and listeners, uh, those of you who are interested in the book, it is titled The Cuckoo Cage by Comma Press, um, published, what, last week? <laughs> um, right now in 2022. Um, and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today, Editor Rob Page. <laughs>